Hello and welcome back to First Pages Readings, where books are celebrated as cultural messengers. And thanks for joining me. Hello and welcome to First Pages Readings, Episode 52. Today I'll be reading from three books of nonfiction, so let's get started. Today's first book is Uncommon Measure, A Journey Through Music, Performance, and the Science of Time by Natalie Hodges. At the book's core is a story about a classical violinist and her struggle with performance anxiety. The book is also about the author's experience as a Korean-American, her research around neuroscience, how we experience time, and her road to self-discovery. Many themes are explored in this hard-to-put-down book, like classical music and improvisation, cultural identity and assimilation, as well as the science of time. For Uncommon Measure, I'll read from the book's prelude. If you want to change the past, all you have to do is try to record what happened in it. In 2015, a group of Australian physicists shot a series of helium atoms through tiny slits formed by cross-hatched beams of laser light. As they watched, something incredible happened. Each of the atoms, such singular things, with their particular mass and electrical charge, seemed to ripple through not one, but two parallel slits simultaneously, like waves of light or sound. In other words, the atoms managed to exist in multiple locations at the same instant, defying Newtonian laws and all classical intuition. But when the physicists placed an interferometer on the opposite sides of the slits in order to measure the atom's wave-like path without disrupting it, something even stranger happened. Each atom would pass through only one slit, exactly the way you would expect a particle to, without exhibiting any wave-like behavior at all. It was as though the atoms knew before they passed through the slits that an instant later they were going to be recorded. In the words of one of the study's authors, a future event, the act of recording their observations, causes the atom to decide its past. One hypothesis holds that the wave represents a multiplicity of potential locations for the particle at a given moment in time, and in a given moment, the particle inhabits all of those at once. Somehow, though, it is the act of recording that forces the atom to fix on a single path. This phenomenon, which continues to pose a foundational challenge to philosophers, seems intuitively true from a human and literary perspective. Writing the book of linear time changes our reading of the past, if not the events themselves, then at least their meaning, our sense of how they happened and why. The stories that make up a single lifetime are perpetually mixed up and mixed together. Our subconscious minds are constantly at work, rewriting time in the margins of our memories, coaxing narrative out of chronology, temporal order out of time's chaos. In the act of recording, writing, remembering, we chart our stories onto a particular path. One way, perhaps, that from our limited human perspective, we can come to terms with the infinity of past paths not taken. (music) 
Today's next book is Ninth Street Women. Lee Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hartigan, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler. Five Painters and the Movement that Changed Modern Art by Mary Gabrielle. This is a big book, around 900 pages, but its storytelling is fast-paced and engaging, so you may not notice the book's breadth until reaching its end. A gift of storytelling, history, and art, the book's focus is these five women, and as a deep dive into their careers, their relationships, travels, and politics. The book covers over three decades, from roughly 1928 to 1959. Whether your primary interest is art or literature or history, you'll find a trove of information told through a captivating narrative. For Ninth Street Women, I'll read from the book's prologue. The Ninth Street Show, New York, May 1951. I have come to the sad conclusion that there never was an age that was wholly civilized, that there was always the barbarism and savagery that we know, today, with a few beautiful spirits who lit up their age. That was a quote from Janice Biala. There was no shortage of ideas in the early morning as the artists who inhabited the Cedar Bar stumbled back to the ramshackle lofts where they lived illegally and worked without recognition from anyone outside their own minuscule community. But this idea gave them pause. As they said goodnight outside a derelict storefront on Ninth Street, they noticed the vast empty space within and agreed that, with a little effort, it would make a superb exhibition spot. The painters and sculptors who lived just north and east of Washington Square Park had been largely excluded from the shows uptown, despite their well-publicized protests that no exhibition could be truly modern if it did not include the New York artists who were creating a revolution in paint and metal and stone. They knew, even if no one else chose to recognize it, that for the first time in history, the United States, New York, had become the center of the international art world. No longer would artists need to make the pilgrimage to Paris to absorb lessons from the masters. The masters were as close as Lower Manhattan and no farther away than Long Island. The men and women whose drunken laughter reverberated through the quiet street that April, before dawn, talked excitedly about the possibility of a Salon des Refusés in the 19th century tradition and the opportunity to buck the Uptown Academy with their own artist-organized coming-out party. There was, however, a familiar impediment standing between their rebellious scheme and securing a space to house it—money. No one had the funds to pay the rent. Milton Resnick, a battle-weary World War II veteran who was among the artists admiring the former furniture store, lived across the street with his painter girlfriend, Jean Steubing. He told her about the idea and went to bed. In the morning, she was gone, he said. While Resnick slept off the previous night, Steubing met with the owner of the building that housed the storefront to negotiate a rental deal. Fifty dollars for a month's use of the 90-foot first floor and basement. The show had to be hung quickly, though. The building was slated for demolition. Today's third book is Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong by Terry Teachout. This riveting story about the extraordinary jazz musician captures Armstrong's music, details of his life, and the world he lived in. 
and it covers the years 1901 to 1971. In the author's afterword, he writes, I know of no man for whom I had more admiration and respect. Bing Crosby wrote to Lucille Armstrong after Louis Armstrong died. One of the purposes of this book is to explain to a new generation why those words still ring true. For Pops, I'll read from the book's prologue. The Cause of Happiness New York was about to rip up its cultural map in the summer of 1956, and few of the city's residents knew how dramatic the changes would be. The Guggenheim Museum was still a blueprint. Lincoln Center, an uncleared slum. New York City Ballet danced at City Center, while the Metropolitan Opera continued to perform at its decaying house on 39th and Broadway, a few steps away from the theater district. The New York Philharmonic played at Carnegie Hall, but you could also ride the subway 80 blocks north to Lewisham Stadium in July and August and pay 30 cents to hear the orchestra. The cheap seats at Carnegie Hall cost $1.50. The Philharmonic's old summer home, a hulking Neo-Grecian amphitheater, built in 1915, is gone now, raised to make room for the North Academic Center of the City College of New York, with nothing left to mark its existence but a plaque. Only concert-goers of a certain age can remember traveling uptown to hear the orchestra accompany such soloists as George Gershwin, Marian Anderson, Van Cliburn, and Louis Armstrong, who made his Philharmonic debut at Lewisham Stadium on July 14th, 1956, playing W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues for a crowd of 22,500 with Leonard Bernstein on the podium. Handy in the audience and a CBS camera crew and a Columbia recording team on hand to document the event for posterity. It was the first time that the most famous of all jazz musicians had played with a symphony orchestra, and it was, he said, a dream come true. The performance, like so much else in Armstrong's life, was an inspired improvisation. Thank you for spending time with me today. If you liked listening to this episode, please subscribe.